0: Psalm 2 and to Philippians 2. And hear the word of the Lord. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision, that he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And then our New Testament passage, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one a mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves... so the name of Jesus. Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Our Father, again, we thank you for your word. Every word of your word is breathed out by you It is therefore an infallible and an inerrant and an authoritative word. It's a means of grace to us, Lord, simply to hear it read as your Spirit illumines your word to our hearts, brings true in our hearts because you have made us to believe in you, to believe your word. Lord, you have called men to preach your word and to herald your gospel. You set them apart by the laying on of hands of the presbytery to this end. And yet these men are frail and weak. They are earthen vessels. They have feet of clay. But you delight to put treasure in earthen vessels that you may be glorified, especially in the preaching of the Word. And Lord, you grant the unction of your Holy Spirit to your servants in the preaching of the Gospel. Your servant stands before you, recognizing his own frailty and weakness and desperate need for the unction of the Holy Spirit in order to proclaim your Gospel with clarity, with power. and grant this. Lord, let that anointing extend to the ears of those who are hearing your word expounded. Engage us, O Lord, through the preached word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're, of course, continuing this series through Paul's letter to the Philippians. And as I come to this particular text, it, it strikes me. Paul is giving exhortations, exhortations that are very much in keeping with what we've studied in Sunday school, especially two weeks ago, but trying to fortify that this morning uh, with the doctrine and understanding of sanctification, how it is that God is at work uh, in us. But exhortations that are should be very commonplace, exhortations that should ring true in our ears as we hear them. And then as a foundation and an illustration of those exhortations, we have this extraordinary, what I believe to be an ancient hymn, perhaps penned by Paul himself, this extraordinary declaration of deep theology regarding the humiliation and the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have exhortations that are very commonplace but grounded in a theology that's exceedingly deep. And I'm going to see this. First of all, let's look at the exhortations. He says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, and, and of course Paul is convinced there is. Remember the character we've seen of this epistle from the beginning the warm personal character because of the relationship that Paul has with the Philippians. These things that he's saying, he knows in his heart are true, but he's reminding them. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy. This is the one thing that I need in order for my joy regarding you to be complete. Look at what he says. Complete my joy by being of the same mind. Same mind. Agree with one another. Agree with one another. We need to recognize how important it is that we agree. Sometimes we don't. And we recognize that. We have to measure when we do, are these matters of great importance or are these matters that are really not that important in the great scheme of things? But we should learn, we should yearn to be of one mind and one heart. W- what do you do when you find yourself disagreeing with a brother? You know, is your mindset, I'm right and I'm going to win the debate? No, the only one that should win the debate is God through his word. Uh, Our disposition with each other in the church should be, let's sit down, let's see what the word of God says. I'm willing to learn. I'm willing to be corrected. You know, show me where I'm wrong, brother. And if your brother is the same, then iron sharpens iron. And as as you come to a greater understanding of the truth, then you find yourself being of one mind. It is important. We need to recognize that. Make my joy complete by being of one mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Listen to how he repeats it over and over again. How important is the unity of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? You've been in churches before where that unity was not there. Thankfully, we have it here. Fellowship is sweet when you walk in the door. But I've been in churches where you could cut the tension with a knife when you walk in the door. And guess what? Unbelievers, unbelievers sense that too when they walk in the door. If you're preaching a doctrine of reconciliation to God through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and they wonder, well, they can't even be reconciled to each other, then why are they going to believe that gospel? being of one mind is of great great importance now listen and these things really stand upon what we talked about in sunday school two weeks ago do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit pete prayed about this as well but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves remember that sunday school lesson where the point was that in a mission work we need to die we need to die to ourselves in order to live to Christ, and we see that here. do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility counting others more significant than yourselves. Rather than churches being split over what color are we going to paint the walls in the new church building, our disposition should be, no, you prefer purple? Let's do purple, <laughs> even though you don't want purple. It's an attitude. A self-sacrificing attitude considering others is more important considering their preferences is more important considering themselves is more significant than you that each of you look not to his own interests, but also to the interest of others this is the way we're to live with each other not being self-centered but looking outward to, to the interest and to the needs of each other in the body of Christ. Again, I've bragged on you before in the way in which you do these things. It's exemplary, and it, it, it's a blessing. It's a blessing to the church. So So these are very... Ordinary kinds of exhortations were to be of one mind, were to consider others more significant than ourselves, were to consider others' interests more important than our own interests as we live together in the body of Christ. But how are these exhortations grounded in the text? Like I said, with this incredible Christ hymn. It's two verses, one that speaks to the humiliation of Christ, the other that speaks to the exaltation of Christ. <clears throat> um Many people see this as this looks like verses to a hymn. This is probably taken from a hymn. I I think that that's probably true. I've wondered did the apostle Paul write the hymn? Or was this another hymn that he took and then he employed it for his use here? We don't know. You know, some people come and visit our services and <clears throat> And they hear the hymns that we sing, and they're not familiar with some of the hymns that we sing. And they think, well, why don't they sing other kind of hymns like we hear in other churches? And we, we need to recognize that we only have so much time to sing in a worship service. It needs to be substantive. Whether singing the Psalms or the great hymns of the faith. That there are contemporary hymns that are worthy to be sung in churches. But the old hymns, why do we sing the old hymns? And when we say old hymns, we usually mean older than what other people mean when they say old hymns. (laughs) Who are the hymn writers? I'm talking about the Charles Wesley's, the Isaac Watts, the John Newtons, these kind of hymn writers. These are, these are ministers of the gospel. They were full of the scriptures. These were men who were full of theology, full of the Bible, full of the Holy Spirit, and you can see the fruit of those labors and the hymns that they wrote that we have in our hymnals. The sad thing is today is preachers don't write hymns anymore. I write stories, although I haven't written one in a while, I think there should be a seminary class in every seminary where they teach how to sing when ministers are leading in worship and also teach hymn writing. Most contemporary hymns written today are written by someone who's a musician who loves Jesus. And that's a good thing. I'm not opposed to that. I'm not opposed to a musician who loves Jesus writing songs but they don't have the depth of knowledge of the whole counsel of God that hymnists of the past had. And that's why we have these rich hymns that we have. And I think that's what we have in this text here, is a very rich hymn, perhaps penned by the Apostle Paul himself. And though I'm not going to write a paper about how Pete's always want me to write papers um, <clears throat> about how preachers need to be writing. Well, maybe somebody needs to write that paper. I don't know about writing hymns in our day. But listen to this one. Listen to what he says. Have this mind among yourselves, which is in Christ Jesus. Sometimes it's translated, have the same attitude as the Lord Jesus Christ. And the point that's being made here is the Lord Jesus Christ humbled himself. And what's the point being made before in the exhortations that come? Humble yourself. In other words, be like Christ. Be like Christ, how Christ humbled himself. And then what we have is this glorious hymn that's full of deep theology that needs to be unpacked. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, we've got to unpack that. There's a lot of deep theology there. There's also wording there that's often misunderstood. What does it mean that Christ was in the form of God? Does it mean he wasn't really God, but he was somehow like God? There are some that interpret it that way. No, that's not the case at all. When we read this text, we have to read it within the context of the rest of Scripture. That's called the analogy of faith. You understand particular passages in light of what the whole of Scripture is teaching. And that has to be brought to bear here in this Christ hymn. Because the Bible elsewhere tells us that Jesus Christ is God. He is God. And there's a parallel that we see in this between him being in the form of God and emptying himself and then him being in the form of man. It doesn't mean he was somehow like man. No, he became man. This is what we confess when we use the Nicene Creed. It's why I have picked the Nicene Creed for this morning. Who, who though he was in the form of God, he is God. John 1.1 says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He is not simply in the form of God in some way reducing him when you see this. who Though he was in the form of God, and of course he's going to come in the form of man, we'll see, did not count equality a thing to be grasped. Now we need to stop and unpack this did not count equality with God, that is, equality with Father, the Father, something to be grasped or something to be held on to or something to cling to. Now, again, we need to recognize what's going on here. He has eternally been equal with the Father. We talk about the doctrine of the Trinity. Have you ever heard the terms the ontological trinity and the economic trinity. I know ontological is a big word. I understand that. That means we'll define the word and what it means in the economic trinity. It's how theologians have wrestled with the scriptures to understand the nature of the triune God in terms of his eternal being and the three persons and how they operate in their work, in the work of creation, in the work of redemption. And when we talk about God in his being, what we call the ontological trinity, God as he is, there's no subordination of persons. Not the Son to the Father, not the Spirit to the Father and the Son. They are equal in power and in glory. That's what the Westminster Confession of Faith teaches Because if one submitted to the other eternally, they would be less than the Father, you see. There is currently a serious error in the Trinity that's circulating in evangelical circles that would reduce the Son to subordination to the Father eternally. That is an error to be avoided. Now, the three persons of the God in power and glory In their essence, in their being, eternally. But God, who has eternally existed, has chosen to work outside of Himself in creation and in redemption. And the three persons of the Godhead are at work in creation and in redemption. And in the creation and redemption work, the Son willingly has submitted Himself. To the Father, and the Spirit has willingly submitted Himself to the Father and the Son in carrying out this work. A willing submission of those who have the authority and power in themselves in terms of the work, and a delighting in that. And in particular, the Lord Jesus Christ in His incarnation, the Son in His incarnation, is submitting to the Father in His work of redemption. So these things have to be understood or else you're going to become confused. Now, there's only one trinity. There's not two, one that's ontological and one that is economic. No, there's one triune God, the three persons equal in power and authority who in their work, the Son willingly submits to the Father and the Spirit willingly submits to the Father and the Son operating outside of themselves in creation and in redemption and that's why we use that theological construct in order to understand how it is that we see the son being obedient to the father and submitting to the father when in his essence he's equal with the father did not count equality with God something to be grasped or held on to or clung to it's his by right from all eternity. But in creation and redemption, he willingly surrenders that in the economy, in the work. And then we have this extraordinary expression, but emptied himself. The old King James Version says, made himself of no reputation. Because emptied himself can lead to all kinds of confusion. The Greek word is best translated, he emptied himself. That's what it means. And some liberal theologians have surmised that he emptied himself of his divine being, or he emptied himself of his divine attributes. No, he did not. Remember what we read about the Son in the Nicene Creed, when we confess the creed? He is very God, of very God. In his incarnation, he is very God of very God. He doesn't surrender his deity. He doesn't surrender his divine attributes. He empties himself of that equality in order to work by taking to himself something that he wasn't before. That is a human nature. That's the incarnation. Now, if you think the Trinity is a mystery, And you'd be right. The incarnation, in my opinion, is the mystery of all mysteries. How can that baby lying in the manger that needs his mother Mary to change his swaddling clothes be the very one who said, let there be light, and there was light. That's what the Bible teaches. It's a profound mystery. And so we formulate that Doctrine of the incarnation, do we not? He's one person, that is one Lord Jesus Christ, but one person with two natures, a divine nature and a human nature, and these natures are not confused or intermixed, but they're united in the one person, which is the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's in his divine person is God the Son. There is united as he takes to himself a human nature, a human nature and a divine nature. And he did this in obedience to the Father. Why? To redeem you. That's why. He emptied himself by taking to himself something that he wasn't before. A human nature. And the text goes on to explain that to us too. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. You hear the word form. We saw form of God now the form of a servant doesn't mean that he wasn't a servant but only appeared to be a servant no he was a, ser- a servant just like he was God and remains God now he takes the form of a servant being born in the likeness of man that does not mean he is only in the image of man or looks like a man but is not a man no that's a gnostic heresy it's called docetism that says He only appeared to have a body. It's an ancient heresy. John addresses it in his epistles. That particular heresy. It's that old, that heresy. No, he's not simply in the likeness of man. He became a man. That's profound mystery. And he became a man forever. You realize now the ascended Lord Jesus Christ at the right hand of the Father is still the God-man. It's extraordinary, isn't it? This is mystery upon mystery. No one could ever figure it out. No one would ever come up with this by their imaginations. We know it by the revelation of God because God has told us who he is. And being found in human form, there's that word form again, being found a man He humbled himself. And that's the point. If he did this, you should humble yourselves with each other. (laughs) Isn't that the point that he's making with this great Christ him? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He obeyed the Father in everything as the God-man, and in particularly... In the death, and the death of the cross. That is, he died as a common criminal. Paul tells us in Galatians, Cursed is he who hangs on a tree. He died the death of one cursed on our behalf. He took the curse of the covenant in himself. He took the penalty upon himself in our stead that we may receive the blessing. He humbled himself by not grasping to equality that was his by being obedient to the father in the incarnation and in particular in the death and death on the cross now we need to be careful here as well our final hymn this morning is going to be and can it be written by charles wesley it's why i mentioned wesley earlier I probably quibble more with his brother's theology than I do with him, with John's. Then, when you read Charles's hymns, I think he was a secret Calvinist. You know, he, did, he just his hymns are just so extraordinarily wonderful. But "And Can It Be" is a controversial hymn. Someone that I deeply respect wouldn't sing it ever although I think he may sing it now that he's in heaven. I'm talking about our brother, R.C. Sproul, who probably was the clearest communicator of the Reformed faith of this generation. We're very thankful for his ministry. But but R.C. Sproul wouldn't sing this hymn. Why? Because there's a line, and can it be, that my God would die for me. And he says, God can't, die and it's been controversial he's not the only one who would say that about and can it be but I'm going to sing it I'm going to sing it with gusto as our final hymn because what that does If you're not careful, and we're talking about one of the clearest communicators of the Reformed faith in this generation that we all deeply respect, who's now with the Lord and knows better. He's also a presuppositionalist now that he's in heaven in terms of apologetics. Those may be the only two things he was wrong about, uh, because he was right about so much. But um, it can turn Christ into a split personality. He has a divine nature and a human nature, but one person. It's the one person. It's the God-man who dies for you. Now, does that mean his divine nature itself died? No, divinity can't die. We understand that. But it's not the division between his human nature and his divine nature and the human nature dies and the divine nature lives. That's splitting the personality, the one person of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the God-man who died. And maybe this analogy will help. What about when you die? And if the Lord tarries for the next 40 or 50 years, or, well, for some of you longer than that, I guess, 70, 80, 90, 100 years, whatever, if the Lord tarries, and he's tarried for a long time so far, we will all die. We will all die. But, but is that annihilation? No. What is death? It's the separation of that which was not ever intended to be separated, that is, the body and the soul. When God created Adam, he created him him, body, soul. And you should say it that way because the unity of the person of Adam, body, and soul. The unity of the person, body, and soul. Adam was not created to die. There was never to be a division between Adam, body, and soul. Had he kept covenant, had he inherited or had he received the blessing of the covenant, which is... Heaven itself and all of its glory, he would have been there body and soul. No, death is the curse of the covenant, which is the separation of body and soul. And what did we learn two times ago when I was here for me to live as Christ to die as gain in the text? To live as Christ to die as gain? Remember that passage that we have that Paul is teaching here? He says, if I go on living, it'll be fruitful labor for me here. But if I die, it'll be better, at least better for me, because I'll be with Jesus, immediately with Jesus. The body returns to dust. The soul returns to Christ. When you die, you are immortal. You have an immortal soul. But here's something that a lot of people haven't noticed. I'm not going to turn to it, but the Westminster Confession of Faith teaches a truth that's sort of hidden there about your body when it dies. You know what it says? Your body, still united with Christ, returns to dust. Because you, as a Christian, are united with Christ, body and soul. And resurrection will come. in the body, yes, even if the atoms are dissipated, still united with Christ, will be raised and reunited with our souls in resurrection. And this is because when Jesus died, it wasn't his divine his human nature that died, his divine nature that lives. Now he is the one person, but in the human nature, there is the division between Body and soul. His body did not see corruption. The prophet said his body would not see corruption. His body saw resurrection in three days. But the divine and the human are still joined in Christ. You need to recognize that. It's not a division. There's a division in terms of the human nature in body and soul. But it's the person, the Lord Jesus Christ, who dies. Just like when you die, it's your person that dies, even though your soul goes to be with the Lord, and your body returns to dust. Maybe that analogy will help us understand. It is not wrong to say, my God died for me. The Bible does. You know, we're saved by God shed blood. The Bible teaches us that as well. I love my brother who's with the Lord and who knows better now, but um, I'm going to sing it with gusto. It is the God-man. It is the eternal Son of God. God the Son made flesh. who was obedient to the Father even to death on the cross. And that's my redemption. That's why we're going to sing it with great gusto. So get ready to sing And Can It Be. It is one of the great gospel hymns written by Charles Wesley. Even death on a cross. But that's not the end, is it? That's his humiliation. There's another verse to this song. Therefore God has highly exalted him. Because of his obedience, he has highly exalted him and gave him or bestowed upon him the name which is above every name. Because of the obedience of Christ to the Father in his incarnation, his obedience unto death, God the Father has exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. Do you know what that name is? That name is not Jesus. Jesus. That name's not Jesus. Jesus is his name in his incarnation. It means God saves. It is Jesus who is exalted, but it's Jesus who is given a name which is above every name. That name in the text is Lord. Bestowed upon him a name which is above every name that every knee would bow of those in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue would confess Jesus Christ is, and here's the name that's given to him above every name, Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Because he was obedient, God has exalted him to the highest place and bestowed upon him the name which is above every name, and that name is Lord in every knee. And every tongue, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that He is Lord in the consummation when Jesus comes in the clouds of glory. You mean even those in hell? That's what the text says. Those in heaven, that is the angels that inhabit heaven, the invisible heaven that God created, the church triumphant, brothers and sisters in Christ, who are already there singing, and can it be with R.C. Sproul in heaven? Those in heaven, those on earth, that is those who are now living, that includes us at present, and those under the earth, yes, those in hell, will confess Jesus Christ is Lord. And I'm not teaching universalism. They will confess he is Lord to their great terror for all eternity as they suffer the unmitigated wrath of God against their sin in hell, they will know that Jesus Christ is Lord. All will know and acknowledge that he's been given this name, which is above every name. But we will be singing praises in heaven. He humbled himself. And that's the point he's making. So you humble yourselves with each other. Because he humbled himself, God has exalted him and exalted him to the highest place. Given him the highest name. Given him the name above all names. Given him the name Lord. So what should you do? Bow the knee. And confess today, now. I'm going to remind you of our Old Testament reading, Psalm 2. Same message. It's the same message. Different song, same message. Why do the nations, why do the nations, what's the word that's used there? Why do they do this against the Lord and against his anointed? His anointed, his Messiah, his Messiah. Why do they do this? David, I think it's David that wrote the psalm. We don't know for certain, but I think it's David that wrote the psalm. Why do they rage against the Lord? It's struggling. Why would they even think to do such a thing as that? Have they lost their minds? Of course, have. Yeah. What does the Lord say in Psalm 2? Well, first he laughs. laughs. He laughs in derision from heaven at them. Who do they think they are? Who do they think they are? Then he terrifies them with a declaration, yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. That's the exaltation of King Jesus. Not Zion here on earth, but Zion here on earth is a type and a shadow of the Zion that's in heaven. As he was ascended to the right hand of the Father. I have sent my king on my holy hill of Zion. And he says to him, ask of me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance. I'll give you a rod to smash them to pieces. Hear how terrifying Psalm 2 is to the unbeliever? Then he comes to the end of the psalm. What does he say? He says, be warned, O kings. (laughs) Listen up. Listen up. Be warned. Be warned, you kings. Then he says, kiss the son. You've heard me preach that before. Kiss the son, lest he be angry. I love the New King James translation. And you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled just a little bit. This is not the kiss of affection. It's get down on your hands and knees and and absolute, utter surrender and kiss the signet ring of Jesus Christ, God's Messiah, who's made flesh. Let me tell you something. When you get down and you kiss that ring, you'll see a scar right here. Still there. You kiss the ring of the one who's been given the name Lord, but the one who's been given the name Lord is the one who hung on a cross and died to redeem you and save you. God loves you more. You cannot be loved more than He loves you. So, what's the application? be humble with each other the application comes then we have the grounding of the application in the song and worship him worship him let's pray father we thank you for your word in this glorious glorious text tells us about Jesus and what he's done for us and Lord we pray that even as our Lord humbled himself even to the point of death death on a cross that we would humble ourselves before each other and thank you father for exalting your son And bestowing upon him the name which is above every name as he sits at your right hand enthroned. And as he sits at your right hand and prays for us. Our King, who is our Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.